All right, turn to Exodus. Whoa, 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 whoa. All right. Let's actually start in chapter 17, verse 8. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek. While Moses and Aaron and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary. So they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it, while Aaron and Hur held up his hands on one one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in the book and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done through for Moses and for his people uh, and, and how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Now Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken Zipporah, Moses' wife, and after he had sent her home, along with her two sons, the name of the one was Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land, and the name of the other, Eliezer, for he said, the God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and with his wife to Moses in the wilderness where he was encamped at the mountain of God. And when he sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her, Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other of their warfare and went into the, uh, of their were- welfare, I'm sorry, and went into the tent. Then Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to, to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had come upon them in this way and how the Lord had delivered them. And Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel, in that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods, because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought, bought, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. The next day Moses sat to judge the people. And the people stood around Moses from morning until evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, What is this that you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you from morning until evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, it's because the people come to, to inquire about God. 
when they have a dispute, they come to me and I decide between one person and another and I make them know the statutes of God and His laws. Moses' father-in-law said to him, what you're doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out for the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. Now, hear my voice. I will give you advice. And God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God. And you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the peoples as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And let, the, let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you. But any small matter they shall decide themselves. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you, and, will be able to, and you will be able to endure. And all the, this and all this people also will go on to their place in peace. So Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he had said. Moses chose able men out of all of Israel and made them heads over the people, chiefs of thousands, hundreds, and fifties, and tens. And they judged the people at all times, any hard case they brought to Moses. But any, any small matter they decided themselves. Then Moses let his father-in-law depart and he went away to his own country. Let's pray and ask God for help as we get into this passage today. Father, we do ask that you help us, that your Spirit open our eyes to the truth, knowing that this is your word for us today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. On September 17th, 1849, a young woman who had been raised as a slave right here in Maryland, escaped from slavery. Now, being a former slave, she had no money, no protection. She needed help. She was aided by what became known as the Underground Railroad, this unofficial network of safe houses and transportation. She found her way to Philadelphia, and after she got a job in Philadelphia, realized that freedom without those she loved was not true freedom, and she needed to go back and rescue others out of slavery. She, in all, took 19 trips back and forth, rescuing family members, friends out of slavery. The Fugitive Slave Act of 1850 made her work dangerous. Anyone that was found sheltering a slave was immediately given six months in in prison, much less someone who's organizing the Underground Railroad and intentionally helping men and women escape. You see, slaves had no money, no protection. And without guidance, they had no no clue where to go. Her nickname 
after rescuing hundreds from the slave trade. Her nickname became Moses. Which conveniently leads us to our story today. God's people are a people freed from slavery. And in the same way, on their own, have no protection. They're open to any attack. They need guidance. When we look at our story today, we actually see three uh, different stories that at first seem unrelated. But there is a, uh, a link between all three of these stories. And that link is this. While these people are open to any kind of attack, while these people are in great need of protection, God fights through his people. God fights through his people. Now let's, let's step back just for a second. Um, remember the, uh, a couple weeks ago we talked about the, the parting of the Red Sea. When the Red Sea was was split in two and the people walked across, I, I quoted there A.T. Motyer who said that God is going to fight through his people, but before God fights through his people, his people need to know that God fights for his people. Remember that? Well, now we see God is fighting not simply for his people, but God is fighting through his people. Now here's just kind of wrap your mind around this picture, okay? Leaving uh, Egypt, running away from, uh, from the Egyptians, the, the sea was parted. What did Israel do to fight against the enemy? Absolutely nothing. God did all of the work, and Israel was completely passive in this. We might say, as a Christian, that that does refer to our justification. What did we do to earn God's righteousness? Absolutely nothing. He just did it for us. And now we, we, we are getting into a parallel of what we might call sanctification, in which we see that God actually fights now through His people. So right here in this text, uh, three stories, they seem unrelated. I want to connect them all for you with that one theme that God fights through His people, and hopefully it will be edifying and encouraging for us today. Right there in verse, verse 8, we see uh, the beginning of three problems. The first problem is an, an, an enemy problem. Israel has an enemy problem. Number two, they have an outsider problem. And number three, they have a leadership problem. And with each one of these problems, the answer comes that God fights in each one of these through his people. So here in verse 8, uh, they, they, they are drinking water from the rock. Remember the story last week? And they look up, and immediately they see the Amalekites coming toward them. And I sort of picture, I don't know, I'm like picturing some kind of Hollywood rendition of this where these people look horrifying, right? And Israel thinks everything is good to go. We're, we're now drinking from a rock. God's taking care of us. And oh my goodness, 
here comes the Amalekites, waging war against them. They have, first, an enemy problem. And what we're going to see is that God fights through his people to defeat their enemies. In other words, God fights through you to defeat your enemies. Over Thanksgiving, my family and I uh, went to Pennsylvania to spend some time with my wife's parents, and I took my kids on a little adventure hike, and we found a river, and we walked along the river, and then we kind of got off the path and did something else, and and then I, I, I sort of discovered that we're in the middle of somebody's yard, and everywhere we turn, we're in the middle of somebody's yard. Have you ever found yourself in that situation? You've been exploring, and you realize that you have to cut through somebody's property, uh, and you're just hoping that they don't have a 12-gauge. And in rural Pennsylvania, you never know, right? Uh, thankfully, nobody had a 12-gauge, but imagine if they did. Imagine if everybody ha- had, a, had a 12-gauge, and everywhere you walk, bam, bam, then you walk over here, bam, right? This is kind of Israel's experience now that they're, they're out in, in the wilderness. What, they, they, they discover that all of a sudden they're out of Egypt, but they're in somebody else's yard. They're in somebody else's territory. And these somebody else's fight against them. Because they don't like them being in their territory. A million people just coming through my backyard. I don't know if they expected this. The text doesn't say. But it happened. And the Amalekites attacked. Now, Israel has two, or a number of of major uh, enemies. We're going to see two highlighted here. The Amalekites and the Midianites. These are two people groups that are, that are out there that so they sort of walk into their backyard, if you would. And whenever the Amalekites and Midianites are together, this is, this is bad news. And here we see the Amalekites are attacking Israel. Now, uh, who are the characters in this first story? If you were to just like pull out the characters, who do you see? Somebody name them. Give me some characters. Moses, all right. Joshua, we have a new character now. This young whippersnapper named Joshua. He's going to become a famous dude. Who else? What's it? Uh, not yet. In just the first story, chapter 17. Aaron, her. So Aaron and her, these two guys that are holding up uh, Moses' arm. I think we've named most of them, but there's two more that I'm thinking of. What's that? Well, the Amalekites, three more. The, the Israelite soldiers, right? He says, choose from among you men uh, to fight. So there are these, this, this group of young men that are going out now into battle. And there's one more uh, non-human character, and that's Moses' staff. That's a very important part of this. So as the story unfolds, what happens is when the staff is above Moses' head, Israel is winning. And when the staff is lowered, Israel begins to lose. Who's doing the fighting here? Let's, let's just wrap our minds around this for a second. Israel, uh, they're, they're, they're soldiers. They're actually using their own muscles. They're using their own makeshift weapons that they may have had just wandering through the wilderness. You've got the strategy of Joshua doing his thing. You've got Moses up there doing his thing. But who's really doing the fighting? Uh, Tony already gave it away. God. God is this character that is actually doing... God is the power fighting through the people. 
You see, as the Amalekites are coming, if I was one of the Israelites, I might have thought, okay, where, is the, uh, uh, where, where are the plagues going to strike? Right? How, how is the ground going to now open up and somehow swallow our enemy? God doesn't move that way right now. As a matter of fact, as we go through the wilderness, God doesn't move that way. What God begins to do now is fight through the people. He uses their own effort in this battle. They came out sweaty, probably bloody. They may have lost some. We don't know. God uses their own effort, but God is, nonetheless, the power behind it. We can't say that Israel is fighting on their own. We can't say that. Because every time the staff lowers, they lose. And the very fact that this, that this ragtag group of, 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 of former slaves out of Egypt could come up against this massive, trained army and defeat them is just mind-boggling. Now, this is a miraculous defeat. But God performed this miracle through His people. We know that this is God's, God's victory as uh, there's an altar built right there in verse 15, and Moses calls the altar Jehovah Nisi, which means Jehovah, or the Lord, is my banner. Picture an, an ancient military going into battle, and they're carrying their banners. And it's underneath these flying banners that we fight. These banners represent who we are. These banners represent our, our, our influence. These banners repre- represent our, in, uh, our reputation. These banners represent our power. This is the power in which we are coming to fight. And what is the power underneath, or, uh, uh, underneath of which his people are fighting? It's not some national flag. The Lord is their banner. How does this connect to us today? John, in the book of John, chapter 12, verse 32. You don't have to turn there. But it simply says this. If I, Jesus says, am lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. This staff is a representation of the banner. The banner is a type of that which is to come, and that is the lifting up of Christ. What does it mean that he's lifted up? Does it just simply mean that people are speaking highly of him? No, it means that he's placed up on a cross. He's lifted high for all to see. And there the greatest defeat over the enemy happens as Jesus himself actively defeats the enemy through dying for the sins of mankind. Through his blood, you are forgiven. Underneath that banner is the banner by which Christians now fight. Now, there's two different reactions we can have to this. One would be a reaction of passivity, where we just simply sit back on our hands and say, and say you know what? God justified me uh, through, through me doing absolutely nothing. God's going to sanctify me through me doing absolutely nothing. I'm just going to sit back. I'm not going to put any effort out there in my sanctification process. I'm not going to try. I'm just going to hope that God somehow makes me better. Randy Alcorn uh, tells this story of a man who comes into his office and, uh, and sits in front of him. He's devastating. He says, I'm, I'm mad at God. And Randy says, why are you mad at God? And the guy says, because I committed adultery. 
And Randy says, well, I can see why God is mad at you, but why are you mad at God? And he says, because there's, been, there's this woman that's, woman that's been at work, and, uh, and uh, I've, I've been tempted, and I've been attracted to her, and I asked God not to let me commit adultery. And Randy said, did you ask your wife to pray for you? And he said, no. He said, did you make an effort to stay away from her? He said, no, we actually had lunch every day together. And then Randy took a book. I'm not going to do this because this is my Bible, which my wife bought me. But he took a book, and he just kind of slowly pushed it like this, and he said, God, please don't let this book hit the floor. God, please don't let this book hit the floor. And then he just lets it go. The book hits the floor. And then he said, I'm angry at God because I asked him to not let that book hit the floor. You see the point that he's making. One simple application of this would be, uh, let's say you're lazy, and you're sitting on your couch, and you're asking God to give you energy to work. And you flip through the channels. No, get up and work. And trust that God will give you energy second by second. You see, we move, we act, we do, we, we, we actively obey Him. And as we take that step of obedience, He gives us the strength to, to take it, to walk. So passivity is a problem. On the opposite side, pride is the other problem, where we say, I don't actually need God to, to obey. I don't need him. I can just do it on my own. Have you ever been there and you've, you've sort of had this victory over sin and then you kind of get puffed up and you're like, I got this, I'm good. And you actually believe that you are something. And you go into the next battle fighting without the banner of Jesus Christ on your own. You're hanging your own flag out there. And you're destroyed. No, we must fight under the banner of Jesus Christ. As we think about the problems that we have in our own lives and in our personal lives or in society, as we think of the continual onslaught of injustice in society, as I th we think of what happened in Chicago with Laquan McDonald and, and, and the, the issues that just continue to, to come up with, with race and injustice and, 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 and all of the challenges that we face as, as a people, as, as, as white people or as African Americans or Asians or Hispanics, like we have to fight this is just an, uh, one aspect of application here. We have to fight this, this racial uh, war, if you would. We have to fight for racial unity, racial reconciliation. We have to fight for justice under the banner of Jesus Christ. If we step outside of that and we try to do it on our own, we think we've got the wisdom and the power and the strength and the ideas, and we try to do that on our own, it's just going to be a mess. And we're going to be hot-tempered. We're going to be arrogant. But no, under the banner of Jesus Christ, we're at the cross. The ground is level. We all come together as sinners saved by the grace of God. Now we can do some work. Now we can fight. Do you see how that works? Under the banner of this great name. All right, I only have a little bit of time left for the next two stories, so let's move on here. 
First, there's this enemy, enemy problem. Secondly, we see an outsider problem. So quickly, look at verse 1. Jethro, uh, the priest of Midian. Now, this is Moses' father-in-law. A quick problem that, uh, that uh, comes up here is simply this. Our great leader Moses has a father-in-law who is the priest of Midian. Now, remember, the Midianites and the Amalekites are two of the greatest enemies that Israel has. And this guy, Jethro, is the priest of Midian. He's probably some kind of high priest. He might be the head of the Midianites. We don't really know. How can our leader Moses have a father-in-law who is the priest of Midian? This outsider, now, who comes. So he comes in this story with Moses' wife and, and kids. And you might have noticed when I read that, that there's this reunion that takes place, but not much is mentioned about his wife and kids. All the focus is on his father-in-law. Why is that? Well, I don't think it's because Moses did not have a reunion with his wife and kids. But I believe that the author is trying to make a point here. The focus of this narrative now is on the priest of Midian, Jethro, the father-in-law of Moses. And so we see what happens just quickly. Verse 8, Moses tells the priest of Midian, Jethro, his father-in-law, all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh, so he, 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 he explains the mighty work of God to Jethro. Jethro says in verses 9 through 11, he, first he rejoices, he praises for all of the things that God has done. Jethro in verse 10 says, Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you from Pharaoh. Verse 11, look at this. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. This is what I believe to be Jethro's conversion. Jethro here is hearing the mighty, the mighty works of God. He's hearing of the deliverance from bondage. He first rejoices, and then he makes this confession of faith. Now I know that your God is greater than all of the other gods. What do they do with him? What is their response? In verse 12, we see that they eat together. And those of you that know something about uh, the scriptural understanding of meals, meals are, are important. This means covenant. This means relationship. He's now being included into the family of God. A Gentile, the priest of Midian, hears of the mighty works of God, and God saves him. And he's brought into the family. You know, it's a shame sometimes when I hear people debate, like, when was it that, that, that God brought uh, Gentiles into his family? And I'll, I'll hear people, people respond somewhere in Acts, Acts 15, with the work of Paul. Now Gentiles are included. No, it goes all the way back to the beginning. Listen, friends, from the very beginning, God has been including Gentiles into the covenant. From the very beginning, we see the missionary heart of God. 
Yes, God does conquer the armies of his enemies, but God also here is conquering the heart of his enemies. He is making his friends or his foes his friends. I've been in one fight, or I, I'm sorry, I've been in a couple of them. I picked, <laughs> let, me, let me qualify that. I picked one fight in my entire life. I was a kid, we, our neighborhood dog. Do you guys have a neighborhood dog? Like, you know the dog that everybody thought was theirs? I don't know, maybe it was just us. We had this neighborhood dog, and the kid up the street tied it up and said it was now his dog. So I'm going up on behalf of all the neighbors to, uh, to fight this kid, to, to, to free this, this beast. So I get up there in front of his house, and, and I'm like, hey, give us the dog, and he's not, he's not going to do it. And, and it's clear that he's ready, ready to, to throw down. And so I kind of like throw out all of my taunting moves, you know, and I can be pretty scary. And then I, I knock his hat off, and, and his fit, fists clench, and, and we're like, we're about to go at it, and then I realize, like, I don't want to get punched in the face. I don't really want to fight. And so I said, hey, do you just want to come down to my house and we can play? And he was like, yeah, that's cool. So we, like, just chilled. All right, this, listen, this is my strategy. My lifelong strategy, this is how I have been in very few fights. My lifelong strategy is simply this. Make your foes your friends. Make your foes your friends, if at all possible. And the crazy thing is this. This has been God's strategy. Now, that's a terrible analogy because the difference between my, my friend and I back then and God and us is just vastly different, right? God, the, the righteous, eternal, holy God, has chosen in his grace, in his providence, in his sovereignty to make us his former foes, his former enemies. He's chosen to make us rebels. He's chosen to make us his friends. And this is what happens here in this story. Jethro, who is a rebel against God, worshiping other gods, the priest of Midian, is made here a friend of God through the work and the testimony of God's people. So, again, we see God fighting through His people. Quick application of this, two things. Number one, how does God fight through you to win His enemies? Number one, tell your story. If you are a Christian, you have experienced a miracle, at least one. And that is the fact that God opened your eyes to the gospel. Tell your story. But first, before you tell your story, love your neighbor. Love them. Get to know them. Come into a relationship with them. If you're not a Christian here, we, 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 we love you. And, and we have open doors. We, we want you to come in. We want you to stick around. We want you to explore. Any church that would have their doors closed to, to outsiders is, is probably not a true church in some ways. But no, we, we want you to come and to explore. But the goal is to not remain an outsider. The goal is to become included in the family of God. So we love our uh, neighbor, and we simply tell of the mighty works of God. And that is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe. 
sharing the work of God, telling the work of God. God saves his enemies through his people. The third quick story here is this, this issue of this problem of leadership that comes up, a leadership problem. And we see here that God fights through his people to, to serve his people. God fights through you to serve his people. So just very briefly, uh, what happens is Jethro, this new convert, father-in-law of Moses, is immediately included as a, as, a, as a full member of God's covenant family, and he now begins to advise Moses. It's really amazing how quickly this happens. Imagine you went to a church that, that was just booming. You heard of this this church is just growing. They're, they're reaching all of these lost people. And you visit, and when you get there, you discover that Monday through Saturday, from sunrise to sunset, the pastor is sitting in his office with a line of people coming out of the office, wrapping down the church and surrounding the church, people waiting to visit with the pastor so the pastor can sit with them and help them work through their issues and teach them, teach them a few things. If you, if, you, if you visited this church and you saw that, your response to that pastor would be the same response that Jethro has here to Moses in verse 14. He says, what is it that you're doing for these people? Why are you sitting here by yourself? And Moses explains in verse 15, he says, well, I, I've, I've got to help them. Like, I've got to teach them these things. They don't know anything. They don't have the Ten Commandments yet. They don't, they don't know the laws of God. I've got to teach them the, the decrees and the laws of God. I've got to help them work through their issues. And then in verse 17, if you'll allow me to paraphrase, Jethro says, says that ain't good. What you're doing is not good. And then he, he affirms them. He's like, look, you've got to teach these people. They've got to know the, the truths and the decrees and the ways of God. They've got to understand what it means to, to live their life and to be built up in the gospel of Jesus Christ. But to do it all by yourself, Moses, that is not good. That's actually pretty problematic. And he explains why. He says, you're going to burn yourself out. So then Jethro gives him this advice. He says, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God and who are trustworthy and, and hate a bribe. Doesn't that sound a lot like the qualifications for elders found in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1? It's interesting. The, the idea of elders isn't just a New Testament thing. It comes all the way back to the beginning of God's family, the formation of his people. Choose men of good report who hate a bribe. There's a leadership structure that Jethro advises Moses toward, and I love Moses' humility here. You know, an arrogant leader is just going to be sunk. But he, he, he listens to Jethro, and he takes his advice. He doesn't get defensive. He doesn't say, wait a second. This is the way I do it. Back off. No, he's like, uh, looks, sounds good. He takes it before the Lord. The Lord says, good idea. Moses puts it into place. God provides people to serve his people. There's no church that can survive where one person or two people or three people are doing all of the work. God has ordained a structure for his family. Now you can, t 
let me, let me explain it this way. Uh, Tambri, you guys all know Tambri? Our sister Tambri, she's in Africa right now. You know why? She's helping to start a cafe in Burundi. I love hearing the stories of Dan and Tambri. They're like these amazing people that just do things. So I'm sitting listening to Tambri and how she, uh, learning how she's uh, uh, structuring this cafe and some of the issues they're having. You know, you can structure a cafe a thousand different ways. Whatever, like, there is no biblical way to, to start a cafe, right? It, it takes wisdom. It takes, it takes some thinking. And there's complete freedom, spiritually, as to how you do it. There is one institution in this entire world that God has given us specific directions on in how we organize, and that is the church. Why? It's because the church is to reflect the image and the glory of God. And so God has given us a structure for how we organize as people. Just briefly, First uh, Timothy chapter 3, Titus chapter 1, same thing, same qualifications here. Choose godly men to lead the church. These are elders. Acts 6, deacons. We see their qualifications as well in First Timothy 3. These are people who will serve the physical needs of the church. But let's not just stop there. You say to yourself, oh, I'm not an elder, I'm not a deacon, so now I'm a customer. No, there are no customers in God's family. All right, you don't come here on Sunday mornings and consume spiritual goods. But the Bible says every single member has a job. In 1 Corinthians 12, we see that every single one of you, if you are a Christian, you have what's called a spiritual gift. God has gifted you in some particular way to serve the body. That might be serving the lost. It might be serving to edify the body. It might look a hundred different ways, but God has given you a gift to serve the body. The church is not to be led and, and ministered to by just one person. I, as your pastor, I'm not a, a distributor of, of spiritual goods. And while we don't have the numbers that Moses had, any one of us will get burned out and we will be, be stunted in our growth unless we take a hands-on, all-hands-on-deck approach to ministry. I've heard people say, you know, the last church I went to, they didn't, uh, they didn't give me a place to serve. And so I left. My thought is like, wait a second, were there no people in that church? Like the only church that doesn't provides you a place to serve is a church with no people. If there are people, look around. Are there some people around you? Okay. If there are people, there is a place for you to serve. And not only that, uh, is there a place that you can serve, but there is a place that you should serve. God has uniquely gifted you to serve this body. And then you might say, well, you've never given me a spiritual inventory test. I've never taken one of these little exams and been told this is what you should do. Here you go. Go ahead and do this little ministry over here. Well, it's because they didn't have those in the New Testament either. <laughs> how did people in the New, the New Testament find their spiritual gifts? Let me tell you how. 
they served. And as they served, they discovered that God has gifted them for this or for that. And they just simply serve the body. So friends, we all must recognize that we are like a body. We have eyes and hands and fingernails and feet and and knees. and, And if one of us doesn't serve in the position that God has given us, our body is not going to function. You don't need to get some ministry approved by me. Just do it. Just serve. You don't need to ask me if it's okay to disciple this person. Disciple that person, right? You don't have to put a garden logo on your discipleship process. Just serve the body. And what we discover is this. God fights through you to serve, to grow, to edify, to strengthen the body. We see these three uh, stories here. They seem in some ways unrelated. But the link that ties them all together is this common understanding that God fights through His people. He moves through us. He protects us through our work. He grows us through our ministry. He is the strength. He is the power. And if we, if we just walk on to one side of that and, and, and just simply grow passive and say, you know, God's going to do His thing. God's going to build His church and so I don't have to do anything. We're going to look like a bunch of fools. But if we fall to the other side of that and we say, you know, we can do this without the banner of Jesus Christ. We've got the strategies. We've got the ideas. We can figure out how to love, love this neighborhood around us. We can figure it out on our own. God's going to let us look like a bunch of fools. Fight disconnected from his power and his strength. Jesus Christ is the banner. We fight underneath that banner. We fight through the power of Jesus Christ. And we hold on to him. Harriet Tubman served to free hundreds of slaves, gave, gave former slaves, liberated slaves, protection, gave them exactly what they needed to find freedom. And in the same way, God has given us exactly what we need and more. But we must hang on to him. I agree with 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 Moses, Harriet Tubman, Tubman, Moses, a.k.a. Moses, <laughs> who, said, who said, I didn't want to confuse you there. Which Moses are we talking about now? She said this, and I totally agree. <clears throat> Lord, I'm going to hold steady onto you, and you've got to see me through. I'm going to hold steady. We are going to hold steady on to the Lord Jesus Christ and God 
will see us through. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time that we can share together. We thank you for your word which speaks powerfully into our lives. We ask that you continue to build us up, strengthen us, edify us. May we become a powerful fortress, not for our own glory, but that, so the world might, might see your mighty deeds and that you might be glorified. Fight through us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.